The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I am so glad that you could all join us because we are going to cover a topic today that we haven't breached yet here on Go Green Radio. We haven't even tried to talk about this subject, not for any good reason. I just needed a great guest, and I found that guest for you today. We've got Josh Mogerman. He's the Deputy Director of the NRDC's National Media Program, and we're going to be talking today about the Keystone XL Pipeline. Now, I just read an article in the Houston Chronicle over the weekend um, that talks about a new online media source for proponents of the Keystone XL pipeline. So we're going to be hearing a lot from that side of the story. But the National Resources Defense Council in RDC has put together the other side of the story. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What are the environmental implications of putting a tar sand pipeline through the middle of the United States? And uh, what what is this all about? And how does it affect all of America, not just those who are uh, near where the pipeline would be going in. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Well, welcome to Go Green Radio, Josh. I'm so glad that you could join us. Jill, thanks for the opportunity. This is going to be great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to learning more. Um, let's start at the beginning. For those of our listeners who, like myself, uh, haven't seen what tar sand actually is, we haven't held it in our hands, we haven't seen it in close in person. What exactly is tar sand and how does it differ from traditional crude oil that many Americans would be familiar with? Sure. You know, when we think of oil, we tend to think of uh, this this sort of uh, gooey stuff that's black and flows, and that is uh, a, a typical oil like you and I would see, like we, we put in our cars, uh, like what is made into gasoline, um, and it's what the United States has uh, has run on for decades. But in recent years, we've been getting a new kind of petroleum from uh, Alberta in Canada, and it's um, it's technically called bitumen, uh, and it is something that is is fundamentally different um you hear it referred to as tar sands the industry will also call it oil sands um and it is something that that used to be traditional oil that over geologic time was impacted by bacteria and it's become something that's a bit more low grade uh petroleum that uh is because of its its nature uh is heavier in a whole lot of pollutants. Um, this is this is little bits of oil stuck in sand um, that is pulled out of the ground um, and agitated and separated from the sand um, before anything can happen to it. And uh, as a result, it's something that has a much higher uh, greenhouse gas liability, has much more in the way of 
water needs the uh, it, it basically takes six barrels of water to create one uh, barrel of oil. Um, they're working very hard to try and, and lower that level, but it is much more water intensive than other forms of oil, and uh, it's something that is rapidly taking over a larger and larger chunk of our oil market here in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. It may surprise some of your listeners to know that Canada is actually our leading oil supplier, and tar sands are a larger and larger uh, percentage of the oil they're sending our way. Right now, it's about 20% of our consumption. Wow. Well, now talk about the process of extracting tar sand. How How is it different from, you know, a lot of people have an image in their mind of a, of a little you know, drilling rig out in the middle of a field in Texas, poking a hole in the ground and extracting oil from a pool underground. How is that process different from the extraction process when it comes to tar sand or oil sands? Yeah, well, so this stuff is, when when it comes out of the ground, is actually the consistency of molasses or peanut butter. And so you don't get a gusher for the, from this mm-hmm. stuff. You're not. It's not like Jed Clampett shooting the ground and oil <laughs> comes bubbling up. Um, this stuff is actually strip mined out of the ground, um, and the the images are pretty amazing. There are sections of Alberta that uh, the the images, the photographs, it looks like a lunar landscape because everything has been stripped away um, to pull this stuff out. Uh, it's also sometimes melted out of the ground, where uh, immense amounts of natural gas are burned to create steam, that steam is pumped underground, and that melts this, uh, this, this bitumen uh, so it can be collected. And that's part of the reason why there's such a high uh, greenhouse gas uh, association to this particular kind of petroleum because it takes a lot of, it, it takes a lot of energy to squeeze oil out of sand, uh, whether it's these giant earth-moving machines that are pulling up the boreal forest in, in Canada to get at this or whether it's burning lots and lots of natural gas uh, to steam this stuff out, uh, we are creating an immense amount of carbon pollution associated with this oil, and it is something that is going to uh, increase significantly in the, uh, in the coming years. You'd, you'd mentioned Keystone XL. If Keystone XL... Uh, was to move forward, that would basically double our consumption of tar sands uh, in in very short order. And if you're concerned about climate, you need to be concerned about tar sands. It seems so inefficient. I mean, when you talk about the difference between the amount of energy it takes to, say, even if we're just talking about oil, forget renewable energies, to extract, you know, a barrel of oil out Texas, you know, uh, one of those little rigs, and the amount of energy it takes to extract the same amount of energy out of tar sands, uh, the comparison between the amount of energy that goes in versus the amount of energy that comes out is striking, isn't it? It is. Um, the, the economics are also interesting as, as it relates to that. You know, it used to be because of uh, the price of oil and because of the amount of work that it, that it takes to get to tar sands, uh, Alberta's uh, Alberta's tar sands uh, uh, fields, or as they like to call them, the patch, um, it has been underutilized. This is actually the second largest oil reserve on the planet, second to only Saudi Arabia. But it was just too tough to get this stuff out on a uh, on a large industrial scale for a long, long time. We've actually been pulling uh, tar sands 
uh, oil out of the ground for the better part of 100 years in Alberta, but it's been at very small scale until the last few decades. And part of that is it's expensive. And uh, it doesn't really, it's not really profitable to pull this stuff out if oil is trading for less than $60 a barrel. And it's only been recently that we've been seeing those high prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also very difficult to, to, do, to do it at this scale. It takes more than a ton of dirt to be pulled out of the ground from these strip mines to get to one barrel of tar sands oil. So the scale wow. of this thing is, is mind-boggling. And it's only been recent years as uh, oil production in places like Mexico uh, and, and, and other places that were sort of easy oil to get to has started to slow um, that we've begun to look at these uh, more extreme ways to feed our oil addiction. And, and, and this is the most extreme way out there to feed our oil addiction. Well, and what's ironic about that, of course, is that um, there are a lot of folks who say that renewable energy, like solar, wind, et cetera, is just too expensive. Um, but goodness sakes, this seems like uh, <laughs> along the same lines when you talk about the expense of um, uh, the oil alternative. Um, you know, you talked about how water intensive the uh, the process of extracting oil sands is. What is the waste product? When you put all this water into it, I imagine they don't just the water sit, you know, sit there. They probably do something with it. What is the waste product of this extraction process and how is it handled? How is it stored? Tell us about that. You know, this has been a huge problem for the Canadian oil industry, um, particularly as it relates to the, to the, uh, the strip mines. Um, what happens is they take, they take this ton of dirt. Um, that's hauled out 24-7 uh, every day of the week. The, the largest trucks on the planet are pulling, you know, two or three tons of, uh, of, of earth out of these strip mines um, and taking them to uh, the, these, these places where it's kind of like a giant washing machine. Um, they dump massive amounts of, of, uh, of soil and, and bitumen-laden sand into these things, and they agitate it to try and separate the oil from the sand. And mm-hmm. what you get as a result of that is a lot of water that is fouled with heavy metals, um, with a variety of other pollutants. And, you know, typically the mining industry deals with those things uh, using something they euphemistically call tailing ponds. And that's basically they, they just take the wastewater and dump it into uh, a, a into a pond, except pond is the wrong word. That's what, that's why I said euphemistic. I mean, these are, these are lakes. These are, uh, bodies of water that can be seen from space. There are more than 50 square miles of tailing ponds in parts of, uh, or, or in Alberta as a result of the tar sands mines. Um, and these are real significant problems for the environment in Alberta. Um, they, many of them are located very near the, the Athabasca River. And there are concerns about uh, how much of the heavy metals and other pollutants are making their way into, these, into the waterways. Um, these are, are, are big toxic ponds. A couple of years ago, there was a very high-profile uh, incident where uh, I think 1,600 ducks happened to land on one of these ponds, and mm-hmm. they drowned. Uh, oh. 
that is, you know, I don't want to make light of this really horrible loss of life, um, but it, it really goes to show you how gross uh, this water is, how dangerous these, these tailing ponds are. If, if a duck can't, can't uh, float on them, there's a problem. Well, and you know, the other thing is, I know that Canada, besides having a large oil reserve, has a lot of water as well. So perhaps they don't feel the same as we do in the United States about it, particularly now when 56% of our country is suffering from devastating droughts. But um, if if you're talking about using all of this water to extract and process these oil sands, and then that water can't be used again, can't be put back into the environment and put back into the water cycle, uh, you're essentially uh, pulling water out of our system that can't be used for other purposes. Is that correct? That, that is correct. And, you know, this is an issue that I think the, the oil industry in Canada recognizes uh, is a, a huge PR problem for them. Uh, dying ducks is bad for business. And uh, in a country where uh, people do care about their natural resources. Uh, this kind of waste is something that doesn't go over well. And so there are um, efforts to recycle some of the water, to use brackish water, uh, to do other things to lower the, the uh, uh, water consumption of, the, of this industry. Um, but usually we're seeing these things as, as breakthroughs that are, that are trotted out to the media in Canada and talked about how it's going to fix the problem. But we've yet to see any of these issues being dealt with at an industrial scale that really makes a significant, um, that, that really makes a significant industry-wide change. They, they are using less, uh, less water than they had. Um, I think the, the industry numbers point to less than that six barrels of water per barrel of oil now, but there, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that it is inefficient and a huge, huge uh, waste of resources. Um, the same thing can be said for the issue of the, the strip mines themselves. There's a, a, a meme from the, from the industry saying that, that they're going to reclaim and renew and bring all of these mines back to uh, to full use and restore them to the condition that they were in before, uh, before they were mined, before they became strip mines and lunar landscapes. Right. And that is, that's an issue that we need to be watching closely in North America because these are huge carbon sinks. It's the, the boreal forest, which is one of the biggest carbon sinks on the planet. It's, uh, peat bogs, also really important for storing carbon. Um, mm-hmm. as these are, as these are torn up, that carbon is released, and so beyond just simply the the, the uh, greenhouse gas pollution that we create by burning uh, this really really dirty oil, uh, we also are releasing lots of things that have been locked away in the planet. Uh, it, all of these are things that that should give anyone concerned about climate change pause. Well, and even for those who who really care less about climate change. And of course, we know there still are those folks. I mean, the bottom line is if, if right now they're not recycling the water, if they're not restoring the strip mines to their natural condition, if they begin to do that, guess what? That adds cost to the product. That adds cost to the process of extraction and delivery and, um, you know, the, the entire economics of this form of energy, making it even more expensive, less economically feasible. I'm still having trouble figuring out how that all makes sense. But we are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll have more with Josh and more about... 
the tar sands, and the Keystone XL pipeline. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. If you happen to just be tuning in, I'll catch you up. We're talking about tar sands today. First time we've talked about it on Go Green Radio. Specifically, we're talking about the Keystone XL pipeline proposition uh, to move tar sands through the heartland of America. We're going to be talking about all the different environmental, human health, and economic aspects of what would happen if we go ahead and approved that uh, project. Today we're joined uh, uh, by a representative of the National Resources uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, and that's Josh Mogerman. He's the deputy director of the NRDC's National Media Program, and uh, he's joining us from their Chicago location. I have to say, great things come out of Illinois, and and that's because I'm from the state of Illinois. And I know you went to the University of Missouri, didn't you? I did. Josh? 
Awesome. I am, I'm a University I am a of Illinois Tiger fan. That's right. <laughs> well, I, I'm a University of Illinois alumna, so uh, we'll, we'll try not to get into any uh, any scuffles over our schools. But uh, I think it's appropriate that two folks from the heartland of America are talking about something that really could impact the heartland. And and I'm glad that you're on with us today, Josh. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet that I really want to touch on are some of the human health impacts that have been associated with the tar sands. And I'd like for you to to touch on that if you would. Sure. You know, anytime you have large scale mining operations like we see in Alberta, uh, there are potential human health impacts downstream from them. Uh, The tar sands mines and uh, uh, steaming uh, steaming areas uh, happen to be along the Athabasca River, um, which is part of one of the the biggest watersheds uh, on the continent. And there have been a number of uh, Aboriginal communities downstream of the uh, of these operations that have complained about high incidences of a number of very exotic cancers. Um, There's a lot of controversy in Canada about whether um, that can or cannot be attributed to the tar sands mining operations, but I think there is a, a growing recognition that it can. Um, those communities are also impacted by uh, the, the broader landscape uh, impacts, the, the impact on their fishing rights, their hunting rights, um, and the impact that the largest industrial project on the planet has on the landscape uh, for these communities nearby. But those impacts aren't limited just to Canada. I mean, we've seen some health impacts here in the United States. Uh, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the uh, massive Enbridge pipeline spill uh, in the Kalamazoo River uh, just across Lake Michigan from, from me in, in uh, Marshall, Michigan, uh, where more than a million gallons of a particularly nasty type of uh, of tar sands oil, raw tar sands oil or diluted bitumen was dumped into the river. Uh, and we saw uh, significant impacts on the public in and around the spill area. The state of Michigan uh, estimated that 60% of the people within a, a mile of that spill uh, developed respiratory uh, or pulmonary issues uh, as a result of things. And that, that goes back to the, the fundamentally different nature of this kind of petroleum from more typical oils that, that we're used to seeing. Um, it has a much higher sulfur um, content. It has a much higher uh, heavy metal content. Uh, it is mixed with an array of other nasty chemicals just to thin it out enough to move it through pipelines. Um, and one of those things is is benzene uh, that comes out of uh, sort of uh, liquefied natural gas diluents that that are are really important for moving this this raw tar sands oil. And the experience in Kalamazoo is it, we're just now kind of getting the the federal reports on on the safety impacts and and what needs to be done. What's very clear is uh, dealing with those. Dealing with those spills, dealing with those accidents is fundamentally different than dealing with other other pipelines, and the public needs to be aware of whether tar sands oil is moving through pipelines in their community um, because the response to problems needs to be different. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you something. Why is it 
particularly risky to transport tar sands via pipeline? I mean, are there factors that make leaks more likely than a typical oil pipeline? Yeah, well, you know, we put out a report uh, not long after the Kalamazoo River spill that used a lot of industry and uh, uh, academic papers to talk about the, the very unique chemical chemistry of, of uh, tar sands oil and particularly this diluted bitumen, the, the, the raw stuff that has to be mixed to move through a pipeline. And what we found is uh, it has a much higher acid content than more typical petroleums. Uh, it has a much higher uh, a, a much that that much higher sulfur uh, content is a real danger in terms of pipeline corrosion in, in a in a refinery setting where there are um, really high temperatures that sulfur turns into sulfuric acid and mm. uh, yeah and and refineries that deal with tar sands um, have to be retrofitted to deal with that it's an extremely difficult substance to to use in a refinery setting but interestingly. In a pipeline, diluted bitumen has to be moved at higher pressure uh, because it's so thick and sludgy. Like we said, it's in its natural state, it's like peanut butter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's thinned out and it's pushed at very, very high pressure. Um, additionally, there is enough sort of sand that uh, that as it moves, it it actually heats the pipeline up. This is a point of uh, of argument between. Uh, us and the industry. The industry likes to say they don't heat their pipelines, and that's true. Um, however, uh, the the sand moving through the pipeline does heat it up. It it tends friction. to be. Pardon me. It's friction. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. The friction yeah. uh, heats the pipe, and they they tend to operate somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 degrees. Uh, which is significantly elevated. Um, and, and we saw some of those things coming to, into play in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, in, in that case, there was an anomaly in the pipeline that actually Enbridge Energy, the company that owned and operated the, the pipeline, uh, was aware of this anomaly. It was due to corrosion, which, again, is something that you expect uh, could result when you're dealing with something that is very high in sulfur. Mm-hmm. Uh, this pipeline was built in the 1960s and not designed to deal with this higher pressure. And so when the pipeline did uh, have a uh, have a problem, uh, the control room in Alberta where they're monitoring these things misinterpreted the data, and they actually turned up the pressure and oh, pushed boy. more of this stuff through and, and, in fact, did it twice. Oh, no. uh, and that... Uh, is not the response that you want for a broken pipeline. And, uh, you know, as a result, we had uh, more than a million gallons of this stuff slopped into the river. Uh, it was, uh, the, the timeline is still something being debated, but it took at least 12 hours and probably longer um, before the pipeline folks realized what was going on. They were alerted by utility uh, people in, uh, in Michigan. It wasn't their own safety systems that, uh, that figured this issue out. Um, and the issue of tar sands was was actually not raised. Uh, the company that that operated Enbridge Energy never really raised their hand and said to first responders or to the uh, 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 to the the agencies involved in trying to contain this bill. Hey, this is. This is uh, diluted bitumen, and, and this stuff is slightly different. We need to be dealing with this 
dealing with this bill differently. And, 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 and we're seeing that, uh, the results of that decision now. This pipeline is, this pipeline's bill is the most expensive, uh, and longest running cleanup of a pipeline spill in American history. And that's because diluted bitumen, uh, once it comes out of the high pressure environment of a pipeline, uh, and is separated from all those things that mix into it, the bitumen itself sinks in water. Mm. And much of the cleanup in the Kalamazoo River uh, has been focused on cleaning up the river bottom where there is still oil uh, nearly two years later um, and, yeah. and cleaning up uh, riverside, you know, uh, riverside vegetation and sensitive areas along the river that have been uh, coated with this very sticky muck uh, it's very, very difficult, and it's very different than the kinds of things you would expect in a traditional oil spill where you really are focused on skimming um, this mm-hmm. lighter-than-water petroleum off the top. Um, it's it's and, fundamentally different. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like there's a truly successful uh, track record of, of spill response to, to uh, find comfort in as we consider this Keystone XL pipeline proposal. We're going to talk more specifically about where the pipeline is proposed to go and who in the United States would be most affected by it when we come back from this quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. Much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Do you feel as if your life is just filled with random awkward moments? Believe me, you're not alone. Tune in every Friday for TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide, with your host, Ashley Iola. Ashley has learned to own her awkward, and she guides you how to do the same. It's awkward, but it can be a lot of fun, too. We'll talk about relationships, sports, food, health, family life, and social life. Each show hopes to make you a bit more in control of your awkward. Tune in to TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide, Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all join us and so glad that our guest today could join us. We've got Josh Mogerman. He is the Deputy Director of the NRDC's National Media Program. That's Natural Resources Defense Council, if you're unfamiliar with NRDC. So glad that he could join us. We're talking today about tar sands. We're talking about the Keystone XL Pipeline Project. We've spent the last couple of segments of the show talking about what tar sands are, uh, what's involved with moving it, um, what some of the the environmental and human health impacts are to this particular type of oil extraction process. Now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of the Keystone XL Pipeline Project and um, where it would be and, and who might be impacted. The The tip of the iceberg is this. A foreign oil company, TransCanada, wants to build a tar sand oil pipeline that would cut through Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. And the tar sands would flow across an aquifer that provides drinking water and crop irrigation to eight different states. And we're going to be talking about whether or not that's a good idea for America. So, Josh, if you would, walk us through the path of the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, Talk about the states that it would be moving through and some of the valuable natural resources that would be in the path of that pipeline. Sure. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about a project that, that, uh, covers, uh, our entire country from north to south. And, you know, in Montana, we go through, uh, rivers like the Yellowstone, where we had a, a significant oil spill, oil pipeline spill, um, just last summer. Um, that also dumps into the Missouri River, which makes its way all the way to the Mississippi. Um, and that is, Indicative of what we see all along the way of this this um, this route. It's dozens of major rivers, um, but you're right. The issue that I think has uh, has has made this the most controversial is the issue of the Oglala Aquifer, which is uh, an an aquifer that is essential for American agriculture. It's essential for uh, drinking water for millions of Americans, and it is a unique and vulnerable. Uh, water resource. Um, the area that is the, the perhaps the most contentious of, of the entire Oglala Aquifer is this area um, called the Sand Hills in Nebraska. If you happen to be listening in Nebraska, you don't need anyone to tell you about the Sand Hills. They are uh, the Grand Canyon of um, that portion of the Plain States. It is really an amazing wonder, and, and, and people in Nebraska are incredibly proud of this beautiful landscape. Um, folks outside of that area probably don't know that there is this, this area there. It's exactly what it sounds like. These beautiful, uh, sandy hills, um, that, that in some places look a lot like sand dunes. Um, in other places, it's very sandy soil with, uh, a thin level, uh, thin layer of, uh, of vegetation on top. But this is an area where 
the idea of an oil spill is particularly frightening to um, anyone paying attention, frankly. Um, this is an area that is uh, more vulnerable because uh, oil and other contaminants can make their way down uh, through the sandy soil very, very quickly um, and have a significant impact on this amazingly valuable uh, freshwater resource in a part of the country where there aren't other where there aren't very many other alternatives. Um, so a spill here would be particularly problematic. And uh, we've seen studies from, for example, a hydrologist at the University of Nebraska who uh, talks about a significant spill um, from the the pipeline along this path uh, could be devastating in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much pushback from Nebraskans in particular um, that there has been a change to the pipeline path, uh, moving it outside of what is officially described as the the sand hills into an area that basically looks the same, uh, has the same sandy characteristics. This is a cosmetic change uh, that doesn't really address the fundamental problems with this route and uh, the 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 thoughtless way it was uh, was put together, frankly. Well, and the thing that's so amazing is that, you know, just today, all this week, uh, one of the big stories here in the U.S. is that almost 60% of our country is in devastating drought conditions. And when you look on the map uh, of, of you know, you're seeing it on the news, cable news, all the news stations right now, the map of where the drought is worst you see that if you overlay that map with a map of where the Keystone XL pipeline would go, there are some striking similarities in the location. Now, when our country is in drought, particularly in areas um, where we grow food, which is where this pipeline would be going through, that means we don't have all the surface water we need to meet our needs. And so groundwater becomes exceptionally important. And it just so happens that that groundwater comes from this particular aquifer. It's amazing to me that uh, we would even take a chance <laughs> on on poisoning or or in any way damaging that absolutely critical aquifer. It's not just for the drinking water of people in those eight states. It's for the crop irrigation water that feeds the rest of the nation in many respects. Um, I just find that that's striking, don't you? Yeah, and we're talking about more than 25% of the agricultural interest in the country um, being fed off the Oglala Aquifer, which, by the way, is already overtaxed. It's already an aquifer that we're pulling too much out of on a regular basis, and uh, anything that threatens it uh, or potentially impacts uh, the water contained within even small portions of it uh, is, is, is dumb. It doesn't make any sense. It's uh, it, it, there are we, we can do better, and mm-hmm. it just shows you the the depth of uh, our the dangers of our of our oil addiction in this country right now. You know whether you whether you're concerned about this particular type of fuel uh, for climate change or not, you should be concerned about uh, what this what this pipeline represents in terms of our absolute desperation to get to the bottom of the barrel um, just to keep things going the way they are. We need to make some fundamental changes. And the idea that we would trade uh, one of the most essential freshwater uh, resources on the continent uh, for a short-term 
bump in oil supplies and and uh, a longer term bump in profits for big oil uh, just shows you what a precarious spot we're in right now as it relates to our energy policy. It really does. And and I, I just want to go back to this issue of, of the water for just a second. I was looking at TransCanada's website, and they have a whopping one-and-a-half-page document that talks about pipeline safety and the aquifer that we've been talking about. And the closing line of that document just slays me. It reads as follows. Um, in the highly unlikely event that groundwater wells were adversely impacted, TransCanada would be responsible for providing an alternative water supply. Now, at first blush, you might say, well, that's nice. They would be responsible and, and we could hold them responsible for an alternative water supply if they mess it up. But then think about it twice. How in the world could they provide an alternative water supply for an aquifer that provides water to eight states? And furthermore, how could the United States government possibly hold a foreign oil company, TransCanada, responsible for something they don't own, which would be an alternative water supply of that degree, something that can't be done? What are your thoughts on this, Josh? Well, uh, the idea of an oil spill in this area is is pretty frightening. Uh, And (laughs) frankly, I don't want to think about it too much. Um, The the short answer is uh, if the spill uh, only damages a small portion of the aquifer, I suppose they could pull it from somewhere else. Uh, There are other waterways in the region that I I suppose could be tapped. Um, But as with many of the claims associated with this pipeline, um, I I think this one requires a grain of salt or, or I guess more appropriately a grain of sand. Uh, as, as we evaluate them, uh, you know, this is the same company that, uh, is telling us that their, uh, that their satellite enabled, uh, uh, safety monitoring systems will be able to close, uh, uh, close any leak within just a couple of minutes. Um, and we've seen already in the first Keystone pipeline, which we haven't mentioned, I'll, I'll mention really quickly, there is already one leg of the Keystone Pipeline. It goes from Alberta to eastern Illinois, um, a refinery just across the the river from St. Louis, the Mississippi River. Um, And that pipeline spilled uh, more than a dozen times in its first year of operation. Uh, In at least one case, it sent a 60-foot plume of tar sands oil into the air and onto uh, neighboring properties uh, those farmers were the ones who alerted uh, TransCanada that there was a spill. Their response took more than the time that they say it would normally take. I think it's a 12-minute time period. Uh, it took longer than that. They've already been shown not to be able to live up to their promises, um, and those are the smaller promises. Um, when you're talking about uh, guaranteeing water, I suppose they can buy big bottled water trucks and bring it in for a long period of time. Uh, I, That's not going to work for, yeah, for crop I'm, I'm irrigation. I think of, it's kind of yeah. far fetched. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of even trying to figure out what that would be, um, and that's why I think you, we need to we need to question pretty much every aspect of this. This is just not a good idea, and ultimately. Uh, this pipeline crosses a national border, and that means that the the process for its approval is different than other projects which are just domestic. And, and the main question is whether this 
project is in the national interest. And Why doesn't TransCanada just keep it to themselves? Why aren't they sending tar sands through a pipe to refineries on their own east or west coast and exporting it from there? Why are they involving the U.S. at all? Well, so there's two answers to that. The first one is they're trying. Uh, TransCanada, uh, Enbridge, the, the company that we spoke about uh, as spilling a million uh, gallons of this stuff into the Kalamazoo River in Michigan two years ago, uh, has a similar project that they have been trying to get, uh, to get moving in Canada for years that would uh, connect Alberta to the British Columbia coast uh, mm-hmm. where um, this stuff could go on to tankers and uh, be sent to Asia uh, and also to California, um, where where it would be refined. In Canada, they don't want this. There's been it's been a hugely controversial uh, uh, pipeline project uh, over many of the same issues that we're debating here in the U.S. around around Keystone XL. Um, that pipeline process is delayed by a year as the federal government looks at a mountain of uh, public input into this process and. The reports that I'm seeing in Canada seem to show um, that the 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 accident um, investigations around the Kalamazoo River spill in the United States are having a real impact on whether this Canadian pipeline project, which is called Northern Gateway, will ever move through. So that points to so so why do Keystone XL? And the the basics of it are economics. Um, the United States takes almost all of the tar sands oil that is uh, strip mined or steamed out of the ground. And we are using less and less oil right now. Um, efficiency standards in our vehicles are going to make that even even more so. I think we're down 7% uh, uh, in the last couple of years. Meanwhile, they're looking to uh, triple their production in the coming decades. Um, and they need someone to sell that to. They want to sell that oil to foreign markets, particularly Europe, Latin America, and most importantly, uh, Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, China has spent billions of dollars to buy into some of the tar sands mines in Canada, and they're going to they're going to want to recoup some of that. Right. Um, and that's why you build a a nearly two thousand mile pipeline across the length of this country to get to the Gulf of Mexico, where there is a, uh, a very robust petroleum transport network. You have lots and lots of refineries and a deep water port that can be used to send all of this oil um, or the refined product that comes from it to foreign markets. And that's ultimately the intention here. This isn't really about American consumers. This is about getting this particularly dirty oil, the dirtiest oil on the planet, uh, into China and other foreign markets. And, you know, again, going back to, is this in the national interest? My feeling is no. Well said. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the economics and the promises of jobs and whatnot, all that's being promised with the Keystone XL Pipeline Project. When we come back, there's more Go Green Radio, so don't go away right after this commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us today, we're talking about the Keystone XL Pipeline Project and whether or not it's good for America to be moving tar sand through the heartland. And we're talking with Josh. Um, he is from the National Resources Defense Council, and we're talking about this project from soup to nuts, environmental issues, public health issues. And now I want to talk about one of the the things that proponents of the Keystone XL pipeline talk about all the time. Uh, they bring up two issues. This is good for national security. You know, this will give us lots of energy security. And secondly, it'll create jobs. Um, what's your take on that, Josh? Um, well, let's start with jobs. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the claims that have been made, it's been everywhere from 20,000 to 250,000 jobs. And um, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, like any big project, there will be some jobs created from this, but they're significantly fewer than what's been advertised. The State Department says somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 job years, which means maybe 3,000 jobs. Uh, And the uh, Cornell University says closer to 3,500 uh, per year, uh, 3,500 job years, so 1,700 a year. Um, we can, we can argue about how many there are in that, but the, 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 the big point in all of this is this isn't anything that's going to nudge, uh, our, uh, our, our job problems in this country. This is, this is, this, this doesn't impact the national unemployment average, uh, and these are important jobs for the folks who could get them, but, that's not what this is about. What this what this uh, project is, is is this something that is in the in the national good? Is this something that's in our our interest? It's not a job program. Um, I, I think that it's important for Congress to be more aggressively dealing with the issue of jobs. Um, but this doesn't do it. Um, in terms of energy security, you know, we talked right before the last break about about what the the real intention of this project is about moving. Uh, moving oil to foreign markets. You know, let's not forget that the that the United States is a net exporter of finished petroleum goods. 
um, we we send out, we export more than we keep here. So we've got plenty. Uh, this is not going to lower gas prices. This is not going to give us supplies that we need. Um, and in fact, there's some evidence that it will actually increase gas prices in some places. Um, because one of the aims of this pipeline is to move tar sands oil out of the uh, the Midwest, and particularly the Great Lakes region, um, where most of it goes right now, uh, into the Gulf. And by doing that, you increase the price of oil that refineries in the Midwest will be paying because since there are so few places for the, for the oil industry to sell, they're selling it at lower prices to move it, um, to break up a glut in uh, in some of our oil depots here in the United States. And so that uh, that shift of the oil out of the Midwest will actually potentially increase the prices that the refineries pay for the oil, which in turn is likely to be passed on to consumers. And so we could see a significant imp- increase in gas prices the day that this pipeline moves forward. Right. Just because uh, an oil uh, source is nearby doesn't make it the cheapest oil. And so I think that's kind of a misconception that a lot of Americans have is that if we have North American oil sources, that that will automatically make it cheaper. But the fact is that the process to extract and to and to refine this particular type of oil resource is more expensive, which is, again, as we talked about earlier in the show, why it wasn't particularly proliferous while there was still cheap, shallow oil pools <laughs> for us to extract oil from. You know, oil and other sources of, of natural resource energy, finite resources, are becoming more expensive because we have to go deeper and we have to work harder to process those resources into fuels than we did when it was just a matter of drilling a hole in the ground and sucking it up, you know, out of a pool. And so I think that that's a, that's a gross misperception on the part of a lot of Americans that just because the oil might come from, uh, you know, several miles closer to us in Saudi Arabia that would automatically be cheaper. That's not necessarily true. You um, know, w- one other thing that, that people like to say about this is, shouldn't we be giving our money to our friends instead of our enemies? Isn't it better to give uh, the money we're spending on oil to Canada than to Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or Iran? Um, and that is also a misunderstanding of how uh, the economics of oil work and the the the, um, the fact that oil is an internationally traded commodity and it doesn't really matter where we are spending our oil money. Um, the fact that we are using a disproportionate amount of the world's oil brings the price of oil up internationally. Um, and so if we really want to limit the amount of money that goes to Hugo Chavez and to all of these other um, oil-rich baddies out there, we need to stop using oil. Um, simply shifting the money to Canada um, doesn't stop the flow of money to those other despots. And um, to imply otherwise is, is either misleading the public or misunderstanding how uh, oil revenues work around the globe. Good point, Josh. You know, we only have a couple of minutes left in the show, and I want to point out, And you, when you look at the homepage for TransCanada and you look at their opening line about the Keystone XL pipeline, they mentioned that they fully expect that in January of 2013, they will get the presidential 
nod, the approval from the president, which is what's required for an international deal such as this, to go ahead and move forward with the Keystone XL pipeline, which means that they're expecting, regardless of the outcome of the presidential election that we're about to have in November this year, that they will get their way. And I think that a lot of everyday Americans might feel like, gosh, you know, the show's over. What could we do um, if that's the case? But I want you to tell us, Josh, in a couple of minutes or a minute or so that we have left, what everyday Americans can do to have a voice in the outcome of this project if they're, if they're like you and they feel like it's not in our na- nation's best interest. Well, they need to let their they need to let their congressmen know how they feel. There's been a strong push for this pipeline uh, in the in the House of Representatives. Uh, repeated efforts to push a uh, to push various bills that would force this pipeline to move through, uh, whether the president wants it or not. Um, and uh, they need to to comment to the federal government to let folks know that they do not want this thing to move through. That they do not want uh, for this project to move forward because it's not in the nation's best interest. Um, you know, the NRDC is a, a 4013C organization, so I, I, I can't talk about the, uh, uh, in an election year, the stances of individual candidates, um, but you should be looking at, uh, at what people are saying about this and making sure to, um, to challenge some of the assertions that have been made about this project uh, publicly on a very regular basis. Um, the job claims are bunk. The national security claims are also silly. And uh, the more we force uh, our representatives and the, and the, the folks talking um, about this project to live in the reality, uh, I think we, we have an opportunity to, to stop something that is a bad idea from the get-go. Well, thanks for joining us, Josh, and thanks for going over the particulars of this uh, particular issue. This probably won't be the last time we talk about it on Go Green Radio. There's so much to learn. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.